0: I think it's good to always begin, since we're doing a book study, to just have a a, a brief review of kind of where we've been. Um, If you've missed a week or two, or or you're new, that way you're, you're kind of caught up to speed. In a sense, the book of Matthew is a gospel, one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as far as literary genre, it is a narrative. All right? So a narrative is a, is a telling of a story. Not all the books of the Bible are a narrative. Not all the books of the Bible are a telling of the story. For example, uh, the epistles are, are teaching, instruction. All right? It's not a chronological story. The book of Matthew is a narrative. Now, something else that a narrative is, is an intentional telling of a story. So it's not simply just regurgitating facts, um, of of an event in history but it's the it's the telling of a story intentionally to convey certain points what we see in the gospels matthew mark luke and john is the story of jesus christ his his birth his life his ministry and his death and his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven but each of the four gospels have different what i would call uh, flavors of telling the same story meaning they have different minor emphases, where they they kind of pull out and focus on different minor things while they're telling the major thing, which is the story, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And what we see in Matthew is that the uh, minor emphases is uh, the theme of fulfillment, the fulfilled promise of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so you see the word fulfill or fulfilled uh, several times, more than any of the other, other Gospels. And you see almost, as we work through the text, it almost seems like every text we read is boom, Old Testament prophecy. Boom, Old Testament quote. Boom, Old Testament fulfilled as it's said by the prophet Isaiah, by the prophet Jeremiah, or by the prophets who said before these fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. So Matthew is written to a Jewish audience who would have known the Old Testament uh, quite well and he's he's pointing fingers back to see this is where all the pieces connect our series on Matthew chapter 1 through 7 uh, takes us from the birth of Christ through the just the beginning of his ministry um, and then leads us into the Sermon on the Mount with his Ma- Matthew 5 6 and seven and we'll, and we'll end the series after the Sermon on the Mount last week we discussed um, a little bit of uh, Joseph's role. We talked about how an angel appeared to Joseph and told him to flee to Egypt because Herod was going to kill all the babies in Bethlehem, and how he did in fact flee to Egypt, and then Herod did in fact do the evil deed. Um, Herod eventually died, and an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, Is it, uh, it's safe to return, and, and Joseph did. And we kind of unpacked all of those things, and, and those stories, those three stories, that Joseph going to Egypt, Herod um, killing of the innocents, and then the return back to Nazareth are not mentioned in any of the other Gospels. Only Matthew tells that piece of the birth narrative of, of Christ, and we discussed why that is and how the uh, three different Old Testament prophecies that are mentioned in that text reflect the coming of Christ. And we also looked at um, a literary feature last week that we called a type. And a type is, uh, is, a, is, is a template, or a type is a, a pattern of one to come. And so what you can do is you can look into the Old Testament and you see these, these types that represent something greater. A type is something that is veiled, a veiled image, a foreshadowing of something that you will in, in the future one day see in a greater sense. And so we kind of talked about how the children of Israel the children of Israel are a type of Christ because the children of Israel are referred to in the Old Testament as God's son. And the children of Israel were um, uh, freed um, from, the, uh, from slavery and God led his children uh, through the wilderness and we see a connection between the children of Israel and Christ being a foreshadowing of the one to come, which was the Messiah. So God in his wisdom, for whatever reason, decided that um, we were not going to know much about the life of Christ post-birth and the beginning of ministry. And so when we enter the story here in Matthew chapter 3, the story that we're going to read today is the story of John the Baptist. We're not going to actually see much of Jesus actually in this piece of the story, yet he's going to come next week when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus But but at this point in Matthew, what we see for the very first time is this character, John the Baptist. Now, unlike last week's text of running to Egypt and and returning, uh, that is in none of the other Gospels, John the Baptist is in every Gospel. So the story of John the Baptist is is fairly, uh, fairly detailed if you combine all of the Gospels together to understand who he was. And I think it's important for us to have a bit of understanding of who John the Baptist is and who the John the Baptist was and his role that he played in the gospel story. John the Baptist and Jesus were absolute contemporaries in the sense that they, they of course, lived at the same time, but both their mothers were pregnant at the same time. So they were the same, they were the same age. They are only off by a couple months. And Jesus enters the story in the next text that we'll look at next week, and, and most scholars agree that Jesus was 30 all right, so we're, 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 we're skipping from Jesus as a baby going to Egypt and returning to Nazareth to 30 years later, we see Jesus here and he's beginning to start his ministry. So there's a gap in there um, that God in his wisdom has said that that element of the story is not needed for the growth of my church. So let's jump to Matthew chapter three and we're gonna read verses one through 12. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea, And all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bear fruit, bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown to the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we see the entrance of John the Baptist in this story. I want us to, uh, um, to get a, a broader understanding of who John the Baptist was. This doesn't tell the beginning story of John the Baptist, which we see in the book of, of Luke. And so I want us to read a little bit in the book of Luke to, to fully understand the birth story of John the Baptist, which is given in quite a bit of detail before we move forward. So Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Now, there's a bit of, there's a bit of text here. <clears throat> but I want to read through it because it's going to play out as we, as we gain in our understanding of who John the Baptist was and why his story is important. All right, Luke 1, 5. I'm going to read two, two pieces of this text here. One is 5 through 25. So even if you're not following along, listen and hear the miraculous birth story of John the Baptist. Luke 1 5. In the days of Herod king of Judea there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years and now while he was serving as priest before God When his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of the incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son." And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the Spirit and the power of Elijah, and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Among the people. Jump forward to verse 57. Same chapter, Luke 1 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No. He shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was open, his tongue was loosened, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard... All who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy and promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now this is speaking about his son, John the Baptist, verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in the darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Verse 80, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel, which is where Matthew chapter 3 starts. So this is the story of John the Baptist. What we have here is a miraculous birth, foretold by an angel. The angel says that this child will be filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb before his, his birth. It says in Luke 1:15 and that he will go before the Lord and will prepare his way. Luke chapter 1 verse 16. I want us to look at that. Luke 1:16 says this is the angel of the Lord speaking. Luke 1:16 and he will turn many Of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Once again, he will go before him, meaning Christ, in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Jump forward in verse 76 of that same chapter, which we just read. Zechariah receiving a prophecy by the Holy Spirit, so speaking in the name of the Lord, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare His way. You will go before the Lord and prepare His way. So we see this, go before and prepare the way. Go before and and prepare the way. Which really fires us right back into Matthew chapter 3. So go back there where our text is, Matthew chapter 3, and we see this prophecy given, Matthew 3, verse 3 says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, quote, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. <clears throat> so under, with this idea of going before and preparing the way, going before and preparing the way, it's important for us to actually look at uh, Isaiah and really figure out what the prophet Isaiah was saying so that we can get the full context of what Matthew was trying to say when he referenced Isaiah as he talked about John the Baptist. So, it's can you see, we did this last week, but at that, at that quote in Matthew 3.3, 3, there's a little letter. You look at the bottom of your reference point, you see where this Old Testament reference is? Somebody say it out when you see it. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Isaiah 40, verse 3. All right, so... Again, it's not a bad thing if you have to look up where Isaiah is within the Table of Context. But this is important. Matthew thought it was important. We should think it's important. Isaiah chapter 40, I'm going to begin with verse 1. First of all, Isaiah was written in the 800s B.C., somewhere around there, when Isaiah lived. He wrote this book. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet of the Lord. And Isaiah, as a prophet, was doing what most of the prophets did and Isaiah was calling out to the people, Lord, repent. You, 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 are, you are worshiping idols. You're worshiping the Baals. That is an abomination to God, and you need to you need turn, and a judgment will come. Prophets weren't really needed if people were living lives of obedience and following the priestly order of the, of the Mosaic law. I mean, that, that's what kept people in order, but if people refused that, then God would speak to his people through a, a human voice, which we call prophet. So the book of Isaiah in the 800s or so BC was speaking to the children of Israel, saying, "Repent, repent, repent." This is a common theme with prophets. And if we were to go back and study the book of Isaiah, what we would see is that there's a that there's a shift in in the whole book, which happens in every book. All right, it's not. And there's a shift that really begins with chapter 40. All right, so before uh, Matthew or in Isaiah 1 through 39. Um, it's a lot of warnings, it's a lot of condemnation, turn to the Lord. From 40 to 50-something, 3 maybe, there's a shift of, of Isaiah speaking uh, prophetically about the future. All right, The, the Babylonian captivity happened in the 6th century BC, so like 200 years later. So Isaiah is speaking a prophecy of the future, that there is something where you will be judged. All of this is, is, you will be judged. In a great, tremendous, shattering way, you will be judged. But, there's still comfort in that God will still keep his promises. So, if you see the, the subtitle there, of chapter 40, is, is comfort for God's people. So, this is speaking prophetically. "...to the children of Israel in 200 years after the Babylonian captivity, after your capital is sacked and the, and the walls <laughs> are destroyed and the gold is removed from your temple and pigs are sacrificed in the temple of our God as a blasphemous act, and the gold is removed and the treasure is removed, and your fields are sown with salt so nothing can grow there again, and your people have been pillaged and you have been exiled into another country, the Babylonians, after that judgment of 70 years, which the prophet Jeremiah foretold specifically and said 70 years, after that, I will bring you back. You will have paid for your sins in that, in that sense, and I will bring you back to truly come back to the promised land where I can be your God again. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And so in Isaiah chapter 40, he's saying that there is still hope in the promises of God. You will be held accountable for your sins, but I'm not going to let you go forever. So in Isaiah chapter 40, it says, Comfort, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly. To Jerusalem and cry that her welfare is ended, and that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Verse 3 A voice in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be made low. And the, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places will become a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 6 A voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all of its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. And when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass, and the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And what this is, is a reference to the return of the exiles back to the promised land. And what it's saying is that God is going to be the one who does this. This is not your strength that returns your sinful self back to the promised land. God is the one who does it. Because if you think about it in the course of history, Babylon was mighty. It was the strongest power in the ancient world. And they just went through and they did what they wanted. And they defeated who they wanted. So they were they were the power. And they were the ones that God used to judge the children of Israel and remove them from the promised land and take them to another country. But God is the one who in this sense, in verse 3 says, A voice in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley lifted up, every mountain made low, saying that God is going to make your path back to the promised land straight. Because it seems illogical. How could I free myself from Babylon? Well, the, the children of Israel didn't free themselves from Babylon. You know what happened? Babylon tanked. Babylon crashed in another power. The Persians, even mightier than the Babylonians, came in, defeated the Babylonians, and then this mighty pagan power God used and through King Cyrus the Persian said, you can go home. And you know what? I'm going to pay your way. And you know what? I'm going to give you money to rebuild your temple. That's God. That's God dropping the mountains and raising the valleys and taking the rough plains and making them path, making them straight paths. So when he says here that I am doing this, God is saying I am the one who figuratively, he's not literally dropping the mountains and rising the valleys, but I am taking this and I will make your path through the wilderness because there was a physical wilderness between Babylon and the promised land. Most people traveled around it. I will make your path straight. I will save you, is what God is saying here. Because you're my children, I'll keep my promises. And when uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse uh, 6 says, all flesh is grass, meaning if you continue reading in the book, in the chapter, going too fast for myself. If you continue reading chapter 40 and you continue reading, it's just this proclamation of how big and how good are God? Who, who are you? But God holds everything in his hands. And in verse 15, in verse 23, he said, the nations are mine. I drop who I want. I use what I want. I rise up who I want. This, this, this world, these people, their are their grass, and when the breath of the Lord breathes on them, they are consumed at my will. So if I want to raise the valleys and drop the mountains, I'm going to do it. But I am going to work supernaturally, miraculously, through the nations, through the pagans, to keep my promises to you. That I, as God, will be your salvation from Babylon. And I will prepare the way for you. And what we see here, like we talked about last week, is this type Literary feature that God prepared the way for his children, his son, the children of Israel to be saved. And what God is doing through John the Baptist and using this Old Testament quote is saying, I am preparing the way I as God am preparing the way through who I choose. John the Baptist as a precursor, as a foreshadowing of the one to come for your salvation. So like the children of Israel, the path was made clear through John the Baptist, the path was made clear for what purpose? God's glory and the salvation of his chosen ones. That is the reference that we see in in, uh, Isaiah chapter 40. This is a prophecy of the future return of the children of Israel from captivity in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, the offer of salvation through the New Covenant, which is Jesus Christ. What we also see here is a lot of Wilderness talk. John the Baptist remained in the wilderness until the beginning of his ministry, we read in Luke chapter 1. The children of Israel, when they were freed from the Egyptians, they found themselves where? In the wilderness. They found themselves hungry in the wilderness. They found themselves tempted to turn on their God in the wilderness. And the children of Israel as a type of Christ, failed in a way that Christ would not. The children of Israel found their hunger, and they complained, and they sinned. The children of Israel found themselves tempted to obey other gods, and so they took their earrings out, and they took the gold that God had given them from the Egyptians. When they threw gold at them and said, leave here because the plagues are too bad, God gave them their gold. They took that gold, you know what they made? A calf, a golden calf. And They bowed on their face, and they worshipped it. They failed in the wilderness. But when Jesus went to the wilderness that we're going to see in the next chapter, <coughs> Jesus succeeded in the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days. and He faced hunger and he faced temptation to worship another god, Satan. But he succeeded. We see that the children of Israel have to return through the wilderness, away from Babylon, to, back to the promised land. And we see John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness the same message of repentance and and living a life of continued repentance, which we see in Matthew chapter 3. But what's also interesting is that John the Baptist is in the literal wilderness, it says here. We have it pretty much pinpointed because we see the geographical area described here. But the children of Israel in the first century, when John the Baptist was alive, was also in a figurative spiritual wilderness because there was a time of silence from the Lord. That there were not prophets speaking for the last 500 years up until John the Baptist. Excuse me, 400 years. If you look at the end of the Old Testament, one of the final prophets that we hear from is Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And Malachi speaks to the children of Israel, kind of the same thing that the prophets say, kind of the same thing that Isaiah says, is repent. You're living in idolatry. You're not getting what the law says and the reason for the establishment of the law. You are not honoring me as, as your God. And if you do not keep my commandments, there will be judgment. I am still your God and I will still fulfill my end of the deal. But there is going to be judgment if you continue down these roads. Malachi was saying the same thing post-exile that, <coughs> that Isaiah was saying pre-exile. Which is the same thing that John the Baptist was saying 400 years later. Which isn't the same thing that we hear now? That we are still called to live lives of repentance? And not only that, but as, as John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter 3, lives of repentance that bear fruit. So not just a one and done decision for Christ, that, but that our lives are judged by God in how, in fact, we live. And just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came up and, and John the Baptist said, wait a minute, you can't just get baptized. You have to both repent and live a life of repentance that bears fruit. Because if you're a tree that's claiming repentance, but you're not bearing fruit, then the ax is already laid at the root And there is a judgment that is coming by fire. So beware. Be warned. It's the same message of Malachi. It's the same message of Isaiah. And it's the same message today. Malachi. Let's look at Malachi, all right? It's it's the book right before Matthew. So if you're in Matthew right now, you don't have to flip back very far. Okay, so where are we at here? John the Baptist, first century AD, the voice of the Lord had been silent for the last 400 years, kind of a spiritual drought. The children of Israel were living largely in sin, not not completely in sin. I I think it's worth remembering that John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was a priest, you know, so when you look at the Gospels, a lot of times you see the high priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you kind of clump them all into this one evil group. Well, it so says Zachariah was a godly man, and Elizabeth was a godly woman, and that people revered them as, as being godly, and that they, that they lived blameless, it says in Luke chapter 1. All right, so there were some people who were really still following in obedience. And not only that, but it's interesting to note that Jesus hasn't entered the public scene yet. So John the Baptist is preaching a repentance based on the, same, the Old Testament. That Actually, John the Baptist is considered the last Old Testament prophet because, he's, because Jesus hasn't entered the scene yet. I mean, He's been born, we know that, but he hasn't entered pub, the public scene. He hasn't, he hasn't begun preaching yet. So John the Baptist, pre-Christ, is preaching repent, which is the same message of the Old Testament, and make your God your God and do what he has called you to do. And there are consequences if you don't. But he will keep his promises. So if you look at Malachi, it's, it's a short book, it's only four chapters, but if you look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which is quoted later in the Gospels, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare, that theme prepare, go before, prepare, go before, he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is both a reference to John the Baptist and a reference to Jesus. Once again, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Which we see at the end of Matthew, Jesus actually coming to the temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you will delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. And then, if you bump to the very last verses of the book, the last thing that we see before the 400 years of silence, before the Gospels, Malachi chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6 says, Remember the law of my servant Moses. The statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb, which is the same thing as Mount Sinai for all of Israel, which is really the same thing that John the Baptist was preaching. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the degree of utter, a decree of utter destruction. Once again, verse 5, Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. But if you remember, you don't have to flip there, but if you remember what the angel of the Lord said to Zechariah, that he will have a son named John the Baptist, the angel of the Lord said, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Didn't we just read that in Malachi? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You see this connection? That John the Baptist is the Elijah that was prophesied. It wasn't designed to be a a literal Elijah will come, but it says... Um, In Luke, back to Luke 1, I will send him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And even Jesus himself, later in the book of Matthew, Matthew 11 says, For all the prophets and all the law prophesied until John the Baptist. Verse 14, And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, the one who is to come. So we actually hear from Christ's mouth that John the Baptist is this prophesied Elijah, which is not unheard of as a literary feature. So we see prophesied throughout the course of the Old Testament that there is one coming, that there is one who will go before, that there is one coming who will prepare the people of the Lord for the coming of Jesus Christ. So that's why John the Baptist is a big deal. It says in Matthew chapter 3 that that people were coming out to see him. We see that Herod, Herod's son, there's there's another Herod, the Herod that killed all the babies and that he died, and there's another Herod, um, was afraid of John the Baptist, that he was so known, that he was recognized, <laughs> and that people thought that Jesus, because he was doing miracles, was John the Baptist because John the Baptist was beheaded and, and executed. And, and so, John the Baptist, I mean, he, it, people were turning to him. People were repenting. People were listening to the Word of God. People were being baptized. Even the holy elites. We're coming out saying who is this man that he was recognized as a prophet so we see that John the Baptist is the long awaited forerunner of Christ the one that God has said through which God has said I will go before you as I was studying this text one of the questions that kept coming to mind was when you read Matthew chapter 3 in this prophecy of Isaiah, the voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, I kept asking myself, why does Jesus need the path prepared for him? I mean, he's Jesus. What's, what's the point of, of somebody preparing the way? And as I studied, I saw that, I, that Jesus didn't need that preparation. <laughs> that every time that we see all these different references to preparation, whether it's the children of Israel leaving Babylon or whether it's God's chosen people in the context of the New Testament and, and John the Baptist preparing the way. As it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 16, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That it's not Jesus who needs the way prepared. It's the people that need to be prepared for Jesus. All John the Baptist was doing was saying the things that, was, that were already known but people weren't living by. He was making way the people to hear from the true Messiah. There was a corruption, and there was a forgetting of God's ways and God's laws, just like in Isaiah, just like in Malachi. And he was preparing the people to hear, and the people, in large part, were listening. All of this was to prepare Israel for the long-awaited Messiah who would offer a true salvation. The idea of going before. God has gone before the children of Israel before they even leave Babylon to prepare the way. That John the Baptist is going before Jesus to prepare the first century children of Israel for, for the coming of Jesus. <clears throat> the idea of I will go before you is yet another theme that we see all throughout Scripture. I will go before you. You can turn to Deuteronomy 1 if you want to, but I'm going to read a text here. The book of Deuteronomy, it was written by Moses, and it's essentially a retelling with some more details of the Exodus, of the children of Israel leaving Egypt and the wilderness years and the giving of the Mosaic Law, a retelling of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. So in Deuteronomy, at the, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verse 30, a few of you are turning, I'll give you a second. Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verse 30, this, is, this to me is where it really starts getting encouraging. It says, The Lord your God who goes before you, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness theme and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came into his place or this place verse 32 yet in spite of this word you did not believe that's the beginning. The, the Lord will go before you. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will, will drop the mountains. The Lord will raise the valleys. The Lord will make your path straight. And then you go to the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, where Moses is getting ready to die and pass the torch as the leader of the children of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 7. It says, And Moses summoned Joshua, and he said to him, In the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to your fathers to give them. You shall put them, and you shall put them in possession of it. Verse 8, it is the Lord who goes before you. It is the Lord who goes before you, that he will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed, that the Lord will go before you. I, I was trying to imagine a more a- encouraging situation in other aspects of life. Whether you're walking through, um, I mean I hear people talk about all the time like you're going to do a job interview. Well, what's one of the best things to do? Is you talk to an insider, someone who's been there, someone who's gone through that interview process and they know what it is that, that you need to say what the questions they're gonna ask. Isn't that phenomenal information? To walk in there and say, you've gone before me so I'm now so much better prepared. Or if you're, if you're going on a hike and somebody says, you've got to be careful of this cliff here, this area is slick, and I've gone before you, you can watch out because I'm going to tell you the pitfalls. You, you know, Lauren and I like to talk to people who are older than us that are married and say, you've gone before us, tell us your successes. And these are all just human examples. But to talk to people who've gone before and say, you can do this, I know what you need to do, here's what you do and what you don't do, is a, is a tremendous help. I've gone before you. But this is at a divine level, at a, at, at a sovereign level, level at, a, at a supernatural level. God is saying, I will go before you, and I will actually defeat people literally to the children of Israel. That I will make your paths straight because I'm the one who's calling you. And then if you bump to the New Testament, in Hebrews, speaking of Christ, who has gone before us, like John the Baptist has gone before Jesus, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, it says that we, as Christ followers now in the New Covenant, have a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. That this is the thing that we can have confidence and assured peace. That a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. Where Jesus has gone before on our behalf, having become a high priest forever for us. You're a sinner in a despicable way. And so am I. And you're breathing air through your nose right now. You're alive. But to fully understand if you're a Christ follower that there is somebody who has gone before past tense and who has faced the judge, and that your sin has been damned and condemned to death already. It's already happened that somebody has gone before, and that that sin has been paid for by this one that has been gone before. And it's done. Your despicable sin has been paid for by one who's gone before. Your secret sin, your habitual sin, (coughs) Your default sins, your shortcomings, your insecurities, your cursings of God in the the quietness of your mind has been judged by one who's gone before. That he has entered the most holy place where without the blood of Christ you would be struck dead. But he has entered the holy place before us as as one who has gone before. John chapter 14. Jesus is speaking. This is in red letters. John 14 verse 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also and you know the way where I am going. He's saying I am going before you even now. I have gone before you in the past and paid for your sin and offered you forgiveness and have have brought you even with God and given you the righteousness of myself as the son of God. And then one day I'm now gone before and I sit at the right hand of God and I am currently working to prepare a place for you. I've gone before you. You are still breathing air through your nose. You are not dead yet, but your sin has been paid for, but you are not home yet. But there's one who has gone before. And so we see this theme from Deuteronomy through the Gospels of of pointing the way that there is a fulfillment of a coming Messiah who will be greater than, than, than God's figurative son, the children of Israel, that will be greater than the forerunner of Christ who is John the Baptist, but who is in fact Christ, who goes before you. And that that Jesus has the same message as John the Baptist. So John the Baptist says, repent. Jesus said, repent. John the Baptist said, bear fruit that is in line with repentance, and Jesus says the same thing. And John the Baptist says, beware, there's a judgment coming. If you're not producing fruit, you'll be cut off and thrown into the fire. And Jesus says, beware, if there's fruit, if there's a tree, a fig tree that doesn't bear fruit, it's going to be cut off and it's going to be burned. John the Baptist says that the, the, the wheat is going to be separated from the good and the chaff and everything that is left is going to be thrown into unquenchable fire. And Jesus says the same thing. So it's the message of Isaiah, it's the message of Malachi, it's the message of John the Baptist, it's the message of Jesus. And the thing is, is it applied in every single era. Because we all have the same problems. We always have and we always will. And we will continually be called to not only repent, but to live a life of repentance that bears fruit. And the hope of that command is, is that we have one who has gone before? That he has made the mountains fall, and he has risen the valleys, so that we are able to walk that road of repentance that bears fruit. It's not your it's not up to you. Because you can't free yourself from Babylon. You can't free yourself of your sin. You can't forgive yourself of your sin. We have this hope that is an anchor for our soul. So as we are called to live this life of repentance that bears fruit, you need to ask yourself questions. Only you can judge you like you can judge yourself. Scripture, I believe, gives us permission to look at people and not judge their soul, but say, is there fruit or isn't there? Fruit is visual, visual. Fruit is tangible. And if you look at yourself, and if you look at other people and say, do they see fruit in myself? Do they see fruit in my life? Then praise be to God. If you don't see fruit, if you don't see repentance, if you're not in the word if you're not confessing your sins if you're not interacting with the body of Christ in a, in a way uh, that, that serves a, a purpose and a function beyond sitting and warming a chair if you're not serving, if you're not giving I would argue you, you don't have fruit because the giving of fruit is clear in scripture and that's a discussion for another day Fruit has a clear definition. It's not up to you to just decide I think this counts as fruit. And so look at your life and live a life of repentance. Drop on your face before the Lord. Get into the Word. Plug yourself into the body of Christ and say, I I need to grow. I want to blossom. I want to produce. I want to be in line with with my Savior who has gone before. So be encouraged from Matthew chapter 3 in the story of John the Baptist. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have sent one who has gone before, who has gone before our lives chronologically and has paid for our sin, for those of us that are Christ followers. And, Father, one who is now, in the future sense, preparing a way for us that we will follow to heaven. And that you have dropped the mountains and risen the valleys so that we can walk a life of repentance which bears fruit. Father, help us with that. We can't do it. We're not called to do it by ourselves, but by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.